want to go to there. Snipe! Saw the window and I just couldn't resist it. Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream. Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, full hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sundance Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kolsick, and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Right now I'm kicking Steve Jobs' corpse in the face. That's fun. I'm enjoying the technology. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure it's his fault. Okay. Good to know. How is the isolation treating you? Uh, it's all right. It's all okay. right. You know, it's it's. I haven't seen a, a living human in, I think, six days now, oh, which God. is... If you don't count the mirror, which uh-huh. I don't, so we the joys of being in the Canadian wilderness, but with a Skype connection, <laughs> a, t- a tenuous one, a tenuous oh, yeah. one. Yes, yes. Fun with podcasting. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking uh, with you guys this week, and uh, with this week's television, we were able to welcome back Dave Walker from NOLA.com dot com and the Times and to help us talk Treme. Very excited about that. Yes, uh, not quite as gargantuan as our first spot, which is to be expected since we only had five episodes, five new episodes rather to talk about, but still pretty great. Yeah, so it's a season spotlight rather than a whole series DVD shelf, though we do touch on the series as a whole. That's going to be at the end of the podcast. Um, But before we get into that and before we start off with our week in TV, we figured we'd start with some of your guys' feedback. So we heard from Carl this week, who uh, had a couple emails for us. The first was about expectation, and he says, Kate and Simon, listening to the talk this week about True Detective, lots of expectations, and also your thoughts of not looking forward to House of Cards, no expectations. I was wondering if there is a way to manage how you come into a series. I ask this selfishly because it seems it really does affect greatly how much I enjoy something. I was really looking forward to another season of Homeland, but was disappointed at the actual season. And conversely, I was expecting the Americans to simply be a Homeland ripoff, and I am loving the hell out of the show finally catching up with it. Do I need to find a podcast that just dumps on everything so I don't come into it wanting something specific? Or do I contact Job for forget-me-now pills that will cleanse my TV palate so I can come in cold? Interested specifically for you as critics who are providing criticism and analysis, if you have any practice for this, or if you just have to factor any influence into your analysis. So how do you approach expectation and uh, not letting that affect you? I think the best, I think there are two possible ways to do that. The first is to try to know nothing and try to expect nothing, which is really hard to do. And I don't like things that are hard. So what I prefer to do (laughs) is to try to know as much as possible because, you know, I I feel like when something gets announced, it's really easy to get hyped up based on, I don't know, the cast or the premise or the network or whatever. But I find that usually when something turns out to be less than totally awesome, there's usually indicators beforehand. Like you go through the writing room and like everyone's individual CVs and what they've worked on and just little things like little indicators like that. And sometimes the more, you know, the more you can temper your expectation just through knowledge. Yes, and it sort of that could work to sort of combat the hype or the potential of it. So you hear the two, three things that you're most excited about, 
and but you don't just stop there. You also look into it more and find out maybe there's reasons to be less excited as well as reasons to be excited. That's interesting. That also sounds like a lot of work, so I don't do that either. <laughs> so what do you do? Well, I try to not see trailers especially for TV shows. For example, there's a Hannibal season two trailer that's popping around right now that apparently is awesome, but is also kind of spoilery. And so I've been actively avoiding watching it as much as I really want to. Um, So I avoid seeing it as much as I can. I do, I, I actively endeavor to not listen to any podcasts or read any reviews for shows that I will be reviewing or that we will be podcasting about until I've already seen the show and already you know formed my own opinion. So that that's a really big one because it's easy to accidentally start lifting up other people's, you know, what they've what they've been thinking, you know, and, and bring that into your first initial viewing of something. So that's something I actively uh try try to do. And in general I just try to be aware of of what they are, what those expectations are, what those biases may be, so that I can then reflect upon how my bias influenced my recommendation of a show. So for example, I really enjoy My Boys, which is a sitcom set in Chicago about uh, a female sports writer with mostly male friends who is not into the whole girly thing. And that that character is, that's not me, but it's the closest representation of me I've seen on a sitcom in I don't know how long. So I really enjoy that. But I, I'm also very aware that I have a huge Chicago bias. I have a huge, uh, just female uh, lead with male friends bias. And so just because I really enjoy that show doesn't mean that it's the best show ever or that necessarily other people would, would get the same appreciation of it. So I just try to be really aware of what the biases are or what the, the hype is that I'm bringing into a show. And that's sort of how I approach it. Yes. Know thyself. That's, that's always good advice. The other email we got from Carl was about the DVD shelf. And he said, uh, I may have sent this feedback before, but I really enjoyed the DVD shelf segment of the podcast. It is great for two functions to relive a series like Battlestar. Cause he just listened to that one and he'll hear your thoughts. Plus an expert on highs and lows of the series. And the other function is to discover a new show. I would love to hear more detail about Treme since I have not watched but the DVD shelf probably has too many things that would hinder enjoyment if I started watching. Would it be too hard to structure an overall impression section first and then get into a spoiler overview section? Just a thought. Thanks for all you do for TV addicts. We appreciate it. And that's a good point. We don't do that this week on uh, our Trimate Talk. We do just sort of dive in and assume that people who are listening have seen this most recent season of Treme. But I think that's probably something we should make more of an effort to do moving forward have a sort of, you know, we, we usually try to avoid spoilers in general, um, if we can, but we also, uh, don't like to let that hinder our conversation. So maybe being more active about avoiding spoilers at the beginning of the segment and then kind of announcing and moving forward into a no holds barred discussion. I don't know. What do you think, Simon? That sounds good to me. Uh, although in the case of Treme, it's a really hard show to spoil. I would say. Yeah. I think we're a lot more aware of spoilers for shows that can be spoiled significantly in that way. So like a Battlestar Galactica, like a Lost, those kinds of shows. For shows that uh, that are more character or scene-driven, where it's not about what happens, but about how and why, then, I, then we tend to be more lax about spoilers in general. But that's a good point, and it's, it's something that we will try to take to heart as we move forward. So thank you, Carl. 
We also talked with you guys on Twitter. We had lots of fun back and forth. Lots of people seem to have enjoyed our segment with Mike Royce last week talking about enlisted and men of a certain age, and that was so much fun. You can, of course, go to Sound On Sight and find last week's episode if you haven't listened to that one yet. Uh, so thank you guys for listening. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I talked with Swedge about parenthood and the whole Joel thing, and also talked with Catherine. Catherine uh, is was more supportive of it. Swedge was where I am with it and we'll talk about that a little later in the show and then talked some x-files with shannon kyle genevieve Geneviève, aaron and jean-pierre and uh sherlock with best stuff and ryan where are you at with your with your x-files because you've been watching a lot more x-files than i have spoiler alert there's a dvd shelf headed yes that's gonna be awesome i think i've watched 12 episodes i because i've got a list i've got a list of 30 or so that i'm gonna try to hit before we do the shelf, that's, you know, I've got time on my hands. Why not? Uh, and they haven't all been dynamite, but so far there's been a lot of really good stuff. The standalones are better than the mythology ones, everyone. Just so you know. Anyway, we'll, <laughs> well get there. We'll get there. Uh, yeah, not not right away, but soon. I, I look forward to revisiting some of those, though, and trying to not be horrified I used I, I used to watch X Files when I was in college in reruns, but I had to stop because I would watch it while I was like having dinner or finishing things up before going to bed, and then I couldn't fall asleep because I'm a scaredy cat. <laughs> yeah, X Files is a lot creepier than people give it credit for. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, it was fun to speak with you guys about that, and we got some great episode recommendations uh, from 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 you guys, and I will have fun diving into those. Speaking of diving into things, let's dive into our week in television. So let's. Take a break and kick things off with our week in comedy. First up this week are the comedies, and we're going to take a look at just a handful of them, but let's kick things off with the pilot for Looking looking for Now. What did you think of this pilot, and uh, what expectations did you have coming in to tie in with our listener feedback from earlier? Well, I, I feel like it's almost impossible to talk about the show without sort of addressing the idea that it's the girls but with gay dudes, which is partly just people being lazy and I think partly is people reasonably pairing it up with its time slot neighbor and, you know, just trying to figure out what it's going to be before it happens because people like to have preconceived notions of things because it makes them feel cozy inside. I know I do. But I think uh, the word someone else used, possibly Zoller Sites, to describe it was low-key and that determines for me the complete difference between this and not only girls, but I think every other ostensible comedy on TV. I was trying to think of where to slot this on the show, and I guess comedy works because it's not a heavy show to watch. The stakes are fairly low. The characters are amiable for the most part, so that works for comedy, but it could just as easily be a drama, or more appropriately, it doesn't really belong in any genre because, like I said, it's just it's really just watching these characters be, and if you happen to laugh, that's cool. I 
foresee future episodes that won't feature any laughter at all. And that'll be cool, too. Yeah, definitely. And I absolutely agree this notion of it's the it's the gay guy's version of girls or it's the gay guy's version of sex in the city. Really? No. Just because there is a group of people who fit into the same, you know, minority, be it women or even though we're the majority or uh, or 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 homosexual men, then uh, that doesn't make it the same in any way. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of shows about um, about friends kind of trying to figure out their life. And this is just another one of those. I, I actually enjoyed this a lot. I didn't really have expectation going into it other than it's on HBO and they paired it with girls. So that tells you something about it. But I wasn't familiar with mo most of the cast. And it's based off of a short film, but I haven't seen that short film. So I just kind of went into it with that sort of you know information percolating in the back. And I had actually a lot of fun with it. And I enjoyed the main characters. I enjoyed the different dynamics. And again, it's sort of like for me, this is the way in which it's similar to girls for me. We don't see gay men interacting sexually into any level on, on network te television and usually not on cable either uh, and so just seeing it's sort of like on girls you actually see what a normal person looks like when she's naked when you know lena dunham decides that she's going to be naked on the show in this it was it's in i think that's actually a really healthy positive thing for, for people to see what a normal what normal people look like as opposed to very crafted uh images hollywood images and and i i feel like this is in a similar way it's it's nice to see a different subset of people than we usually see on television interacting yeah i think my i have two points about that one of which is I, my favorite sort of recurring thing is people saying well that could be hot when discussing each other like oh lazy eye that could be hot too much beard <laughs> that could be hot etc like that that was kind of a, a fun little uh, discourse, but I also this is going to seem like a strange connection to make. But I was reading about this girl who operates a blog where she reviews people's dick pics. Like <laughs> she gets, she's not reviewing the dicks; she's reviewing the pictures. Like uh -huh. it's not about the bodies; it's not about the quality or length or girth of your penis. It's about how creative was your dick pic? Does it stand out from other dick pics? And what what she was saying was about this process was you realize just the huge the tremendous level of insecurity that men have about their own bodies and especially in, in, you know, in relation to one another. So it's not, it's not about straight or gay. It's just about men and how they picture themselves and each other. And to me, that's a huge through line here. It's not just about gay men. It's about men in general. I mean, you, you could have just as easily called this boys if you felt like it. Thank God they didn't. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I feel like that's an angle that I haven't seen another show take on this subject so that that sort of insecurity coursing through the whole thing to me it was sort of my entry point because of course i know nothing about the gay male experience young or old yeah and, and uh yeah i think that's an excellent point and that's a hilarious notion that blog uh, i don't actually i'm not actually compelled enough to go see it to seek it out but the fact that someone is doing that just kind of makes me happy and uh yeah I, I, and i look forward to seeing what the rest of the season has to bring us any thoughts uh on girls this week she said okay gabby hoffman is my thought um i'm assuming she's gonna be around for at least one or two more episodes i'd be surprised if she wasn't around at least next week 
And I think it's an interesting idea to show us more of Adam's family and and where he's coming from and to see that he could actually be much worse. <laughs> uh, because we, I mean, although the worst of what we've seen definitely rivals what we see from Caroline almost immediately this week, but still, I think to to have the contrast of, of Hannah and her ex- incredibly, almost hilariously well-adjusted parents compared with Adam's family is, is an interesting touch. And, oh, Marnie, 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 Marnie. Oh, man. Yep, yep. I, I enjoyed the, the move early in the episode to have that ridiculous, terrible music video, which was so hilarious and felt so uh, so self-aware and, you know, great. And I was like, oh, they, are they going to actually get me to like Marnie again? This is great. This is a good way to go. You know, acknowledge it and move on. And to then, have her acknowledge that it's terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then we get to the end of the episode, and it's just the most selfish, pa- needy, painful thing you could possibly imagine. I don't know why I didn't immediately assume that's where they were going when they first mentioned it. The the, the notion of the, the duet and uh, Hannah really not wanting to do it. Of course, Marnie was going to make Hannah's birthday about her even more than she already had. Uh, so, yeah, so I enjoyed this episode, and I think, yeah, exploring Adam's family is really great. It's a good move, and I look forward to, to seeing what comes next for that. Uh, I It was an episode of me watching it going, this, like, my my idea of a perfect 25th birthday would be hanging out with my friends all weekend playing board games. So this is so outside of my sphere. <laughs> I was just sort of, <laughs> I felt like I was, like, at the zoo watching the, maybe the normal, what the normal 20-somethings are supposed to be doing. But, uh, but yeah, I did actually really enjoy the episode. Uh, I, I want to also give props for Ray's hilarious non-fight fight sequence. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> uh, Ray is still my favorite character and the one who I relate most strongly to. Yeah, I, I liked his whole conversation with Shoshana and, uh... That and wasn't really a conversation. That wasn't a conversation. And, uh, yeah, definitely he's by far the more interesting of those two for me. So we'll see what what he uh, does next. And I like that they've kept Hannah working at Grumpy's so that we have a very easy in to spending more time with him as well. So we'll see where they go next with uh, with Caroline and the rest of the, 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 the through lines that we see brought up this week. Let's move on to our next show, which is we're going to sort of like we paired Looking in Girls. We're going to talk about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Bet, and Enlisted, Randy, Get Your Gun, sort of together. What did you think of these two episodes and uh, where are you at with them right now? I wanted to specifically praise Enlisted because too often with dramas and comedies, the second episode is just the pilot again except slightly shuffled around. And the enlisted second episode was the first second episode in a very long time that didn't feel like a second pilot. So props to them for that. I mean, obviously everyone's already mentioned it. So we have to as well, the whole toy story three through line. (laughs) At first it seems like it's going to be a one-off joke. And then you realize it's the motif for the entire episode, which I'm hoping they, I mean, they can't do stuff like that too often, but as a hook for a second episode, it was a really, Really fun idea, so props to them for that. I also like the fact that it only took two episodes for Keith David's character to be like, um, you guys are flirting. Don't do that, because it's annoying. <laughs> and they're like, nah, but we all know it is, and he, and he knows that's what's happening, and admittedly, the characters aren't there yet, but I'm, I admire the fact that it took two episodes to happen, versus Brooklyn Nine-Nine this week, which I believe this is what, episode 11 or 12? Something like that, yeah. 
and it's only this week that a character who who basically is on truth serum points out the fact that that Sandberg and Funero are obviously flirting with each other and it's getting really old. <laughs> so yeah, props to Enlisted for getting there way faster. I like that they brought back the bet from the pilot and paid it off here and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I thought the episodes were both really entertaining and uh, the the way that the cast has gelled. And it's like we talked about at the beginning of the season with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That's something we I praised them for as well. And, and Enlisted has gotten there much quicker. So we'll see if they're able to continue improving to the same extent that could be very interesting over enlisted but either way i did enjoy both of, of these episodes our final two that we're going to talk about this week are uh, community cooperative polygraphy and and uh, archer vice a kiss while dying community you actually watched you were gonna yeah. watch yeah i had to watch community i was because I, I don't usually watch brooklyn 99 live but i did this week and i started early and i was like oh it's the beginning of community i should do anything else and then I noticed Walton Goggins was on the screen. I was like, ah, fine, community. You got me to watch this once. And I almost, kids, I almost enjoyed myself. Such is the power of Walton Goggins that I almost enjoyed watching an episode of Community. Well done, Walton Goggins. You have an, an incredible career ahead of you after Justified, if anything is to be said about it. So I need you to be a little more clear on this because I thought it was a fun episode. I had a lot of fun with it. And uh, I do agree Walton Goggins was fantastic as well as the the dialogue they gave him to work with. I thought was very good as well. It was a fun way to bring Pierce back without, of course, bringing Chevy Chase back. Uh, so, so what about this was almost fun? Why wasn't it fun? Well, the thing about it was that Walton Goggins was in it. And... For the first 20 minutes, he was stone serious, and then the last couple, he was really goofy, and that was funny, and that made Community almost fun to watch. The The problem is that it was surrounded in a Community episode, which meant it was full of self-referential humor that was the opposite of funny. So, you know, it was like, it's like a chocolate almond, except instead of an almond, it was something really nasty. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Let's let's move on to Archer Vice and Kiss While Dying. What do you think of this new Archer? What surprises me about this new Archer isn't so much that they blew up the show conceptually, but the fact that they've they've apparently also completely embraced serialization. Yeah. In a big like, way. Hugely. That aspect I wasn't necessarily expecting. And I mean, I guess they're they must be pretty confident that FX is just going to keep them around because they're definitely not going to win any new viewers with this. Well, I think they easily could have won new viewers with this reboot, basically, or exploding the show last week and basically starting a whole new story this week uh, while still maintaining their incredibly self-referential humor. You don't like it on Community, but you do like it on Archer. No, 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 no. What Archer has... Archer has motifs. Archer has recurring gags. Community has like meta gags and gags that revolve around knowing. Actually, I would say too high a volume of gags that are specifically that specifically revolve around individual cultural touchstones. Archer works whether or not you get the touchstones they're referring to, which they refer to much much less often. Plus, they have all kinds of great grammar and you know sort of just nerdery gags that don't involve cultural touchstones it's a whole different thing don't but, even start no you. but okay but i'm gonna argue with you on this one because if i was jumping into archer and i hadn't seen 
the previous episodes that they are constantly referencing with their in-jokes, I would be just as lost as I have a feeling you are when you jump into community and you don't get any of the, the in-jokes. What would you miss out on watching? if you Okay, if you started with the season five premiere, what would you have missed? It is hard for me to answer that because I have seen five episodes and they blur in my mind and I don't want okay, to ruin jokes for people. Ep- anything in these episodes. We'll talk about it in a couple episodes when you've seen the one I've ta- I'm talking about. But I think I do think that for me there's more of a tie that you are not seeing between these two. I, I still think if you were to break it down percentage-wise, mm-hmm. community does this sort of – and not just referring to itself, but but – having so much of the of the joke be reliant on a specific individual pop culture touchstone which i think is going to date it really badly in just a few years i don't think that's so much of a problem with archer okay do you think it's a fun start to archer vice and i look forward to all of the great humor that i know is coming it's a very consistent first four episodes of archer vice is all i'll say but let's uh let's wrap up our week in comedy here with what wins the week for you in comedy Ooh. Uh, that's tricky. Everything was good this week, except for community, which was only almost good. Um, I give the freshman award to looking. I didn't laugh the most, but I was the happiest that I watched it and that it now exists. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm, I'm intrigued by looking, but I, like you said, I didn't, I didn't really laugh. And so for that, I'm going to give it to, to Archer, I think for the most laughs. But uh, definitely a solid week of comedy. I, I have to mention, Ari Archer, that last gag of of the villain sitting around in the whirlpool saying, that was a stupid, 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 stupid plan, or whatever it was. That was my closest <laughs> approximation of the phrasing. But that, to me, that gag was just the perfect illustration of why Archer is so good, because you just know they sat in an editing bay tweaking that line reading for hours just <laughs> just for maximum effectiveness and i couldn't tell you why it's funny because on paper it's completely ridiculous and stupid but just th- for some reason it just killed me you saying it made me laugh so there you go. clearly it worked well um we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre please allow me to introduce myself i'm a man of will genre we have the pilot to black sales we have american horror story coven protect the coven we have the sleepy hollow finale the indispensable man and bad blood it was a two-parter we'll also talk a little bit about vessel i'm sure which was the episode from last week Uh, but before we get into that i wanted to mention in the flesh which is a a sort of zombie series that aired in the uk last year and uh, i i finally caught up with that it's only three episodes but i it was one that people were recommending to me and i just want to say thank you guys because it was very good you were 
were not kidding, and I had a lot of fun with it. And I look forward to hopefully getting to discuss that at some point uh, when we bring back our Walking Dead podcast when the show comes back, because I do think it's getting a lot right and has a lot more interesting things to say in that zombie setting than maybe what uh, the more typical zombie show has. Are you interested in, in checking out that show? At some point. I mean, it's got your seal of approval, which means a lot. And actually, I probably would have checked it out before that because, you know, zombie fatigue. <laughs> yeah, it's real easy to get, uh, you know, tired of some of these very familiar settings. And uh, zombies are certainly one of them. Vampires are another one of them. But uh, but they do some interesting things with character development and with uh, loss and and moving on and coping and all sorts of different things so it, it was it was good it was it was a lot of fun let's jump in though to black sales and the pilot for this leaked online and so then was put up early it will be premiering uh this coming week i believe does that sound right this saturday i think yeah it sounds about right what did you think of black sales uh, well I'll say this, Bear McCreary scores the hell out of this thing, even more so than he has done recently. And the theme song, which I assume he composed, is pretty cool. And it's also directed by Neil Marshall, who directs the hell out of it. So, you know, points to both of them. And I would say that the first 10 minutes or so before we actually start to meet characters that we're supposed to be invested in are pretty good, mostly because it's just straight up pirate mayhem with creepy makeup and smoke and stuff. That stuff's all great. Cannonballs are fun. Uh, but then, yeah, the dialogue sets in and the people we're meant to be spending our time with and that stuff did not interest me, interest me in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, the characters did not grab me. I'm pretty sure I was supposed to be very intrigued by our, our lead, and I'm not. Not even a little bit. Uh, but I do think the setting looks great. The all the tall ships, those action sequences work very well. I would say I, I enjoy tall ships, so I, I have a little bias there, speaking of expectation and bias. But um, but yeah, the these characters, I'm really not invested in any of them. The atypically gutsy female lead that they introduce is really not interesting. Uh, I think there's a different and more and uh, more creative way to do that character. This is a, this is a character we've seen many a time in a period piece that wants to not be period with its gender representations, and uh, and it's a tricky spot to be in. Do you stay more period specific and have less empowered female characters, or do you subvert that expectation but then wind up with this sort of very cliched? twist on that as we get here I, I don't know I just think it, it could have been done a lot better I do agree the score sounds good but I'm not particularly interested in tuning back in yeah when you when you're talking about the depictions of women on this show it's it's almost fascinating because there's so many different kinds of wrong and like yeah. well-meaning wrong like you can see that they were trying to do something interesting but it's produced by Michael Bay and I can't help but have his influence in the back of my brain saying, yeah, you you guys were really not equipped to handle this problem. You probably should have just dodged it. Yep. What about the different uh, ships and the, the intrigues? Any of that pique your interest? Or is this a wait to hear if people say it gets better kind of situation? Kind of. I mean, if they if I had to pick one 
like plot thread for them to keep going on, I would have actually made the 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 captain the the the, the principal character mostly because that performance was the most interesting, and sort of the intrigue of trying to buy votes and see mm-hmm. who remains captain, etc. I think that was the strongest through line. It still wasn't terribly interesting, but it was more interesting than the adventures of spoiler who the actual main character is. Yeah. Uh that's that stuff was not compelling to me and the stuff with with headstrong but pretty lady um who just didn't seem credible throughout and what ended up happening with that also not interesting to me. Yep. Definitely absolutely agree. And uh, yeah, we'll see if we tune back in uh, or, or check back in on the series. But right now it looks like probably this is one that we will not carve out the time for. Let's move on to American Horror Story Coven, Protect the Coven, which we're going to keep carving the time out for because we've invested, what is it, 11 episodes into this season. But man, is this not coming together for me at the end. <laughs> I will give it credit for one thing. I think that the way they've handled Delphine is actually really interesting in terms of having her have that so-called revelation two or three episodes ago, but then having her just be like, no, that was a moment of weakness. I'm still a terrible, terrible person. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I feel like that actually rings true to me. That, that is an interesting way to handle that character. And they take her to more horrible extremes in this episode than we've perhaps seen before, which is saying something. Um, If nothing else, this was one of the gnarliest episodes so far. Which, again, is saying something. Lots of appendage cutting. Plus, it has, I think, the most ghastly just single image of the whole series so far, which is long-haired Dennis O'Hare in a doll's outfit cradling an actual baby. Yep, that was very creepy. Very creepy. (laughs) But yeah, in terms of cohesion, yeah, no. Yeah, and it, there are these interesting images and ideas uh, that, that character development, like you said, with Delphine or lack thereof, is interesting. But I can't help watching these most recent episodes and without wondering, why am I seeing this? What does this have to do with the the season-long trajectory or, or what's going on? It just feels very messy and uh, distractingly so at this point, as, rather than uh, endearingly so as it was earlier. Yeah, I think aimless is the word that mostly comes to mind. And, and honestly, if I hear one more character talk about how actually they're the next Supreme, or just anyone talking about the Supreme at all, I may have to jab my own eyes out. Yeah, something like that. We'll see We'll see what we have to say next week. There's only two episodes left this season. But uh, let's move on now to our, our first finale of the year, which is the Sleepy Hollow finale. We Last week, they, we, of course, had Vessel. And then this week, we have the Indispensable Man and Bad Blood, Zombie George Washington. Yeah, I wish I was as impressed with Sleepy Hollow as everyone else seems to be. But I'm just not. There is... A well-executed twist, I would say, near the end of the finale, which I will give them some props for. But to me, Sleepy Hollow is kind of the definition of sugar rush TV, that while you're watching it, there's a couple of sort of chuckle-worthy lines or cool images here and there. And then I'm glad that we I, – I watched the two-hour finale this morning and we're recording a couple hours later – if and usually it airs Monday night, so for t- for a Tuesday podcast, it's perfect because I can still remember it. But if Sleepy Hollow aired on Wednesdays, we were recording on Tuesdays. I think I'd have a much harder problem recalling it because it's just not that memorable in the long run. I don't think, at least for me, I, 
it's been interesting seeing the reaction online uh, overnight to to this premiere or to this finale because I liked it, I enjoyed it, but I certainly did not have as positive or as shocked or as engaged Zombie. response. Yes, as as many other people seem to have had. I enjoyed this finale, but there were a couple touches that didn't quite work for me and there be spoilers. So if you don't if you don't want to be spoiled on the Sleepy Hollow finale, skip ahead to our week in drama starting now. Okay. So first of all, the I have to mention the shout out to Yolanda with the Soul Siri thing. That felt really unfortunate. I wish they hadn't done that because uh, I that that just felt like way too self aware and sort of beating a, a beautifully crafted scene of a dead horse. So uh, I wish they hadn't you know kind of gone back on that. That's a minor quibble. The the thing we we got to talk about though is the reveal of John Noble as as the son of Ichabod Crane and and Katrina and two things. First of all. Thank God we're not going to have to deal with teenage son. I had that same thought. Thank God. So that is, that's fantastic. It's well executed twist. It makes sense. And it is clearly foreshadowed in these, in these episodes, especially in the last episode of the season. However, it utterly fails the fridge test because he was buried 200 years ago with his, his heart stopped. So he shouldn't have been aging. And then he was drawn back up to the surface 13 years ago why is he john noble aged it it fails <laughs> it was it was driving yeah, me nuts enough. maybe he ages faster because he was in a coffin so long or because he's evil i don't know maybe evil's bad for your skin <laughs> well i just wanted them to say something about that it just didn't make any sense and so i'm watching this going like wait a second 13 years ago uh, abby and jenny would have seen another teenager. So how does Abby figure out who was, how does she figure out who it was that was raised up? How would she know? Cause it doesn't look like him because he was a teenager and now he's John Noble. I mean, you could, you, you could say something about how evil corrupts you and turns you into something that looks like John Noble instead of a handsome teenager. But I don't know. They didn't, that <laughs> you just kind of have to go with that aspect, I guess. Yeah. Much like you have to go with, the entire rest of the series. <laughs> and it's strange that that is what is bothering me because I'm so excited to see John Noble in that role. I think it'll be, he'll be a really entertaining villain for next season. And I like that we will actually know and care about, uh, the, the horseman for the second season, as opposed to, you know, just, you know, death, which has been the horseman for this first season. So that it's a good, smart thing for them to do. It just still, it doesn't quite ring true to me. Uh, how about the the rest of of the episode, uh, these two episodes? What worked for you and what didn't? Well, bearing in mind that I didn't see last week's episode, I still don't care about Irving. And they've done a terrible job trying to fold that his stories into the rest of the show, I think, anyway. Fair enough. Now, the episode last week was the one that had all that stuff with his daughter, and it was actually really well done. It was really it was creepy, and the the excellent uh, villain and effects makeup, and it was it, that was the episode that was all about him and his daughter and his and his former and his ex wife, and it was actually really good. So I would recommend going back and watching it, especially on the spectrum of of Sleepy Hollow. It was definitely one of their best episodes. I still think it would have been wise to try to have that stuff play into this 
the events of this episode more than just let's hand the sister a book and she can hunt this one clue down for two hours. Yeah, exactly. That that didn't really work. I kept waiting for something else with that character. It felt it felt like a hasty let's write this actor off the show moment with Orlando Jones or uh, it just felt too sudden and tidy. And uh, also, I'm sorry, I think we needed to see that the, the guy who was arresting the teenager uh, was was possessed or, or was a baddie or something, because otherwise it doesn't make sense for a police officer to be arresting a 13-year-old handicapped girl, someone who doesn't have that physical capability, to be able to be shooting like these pol- these career police officers and didn't like spinning someone's head around completely all the way. It just, just, just that doesn't make sense. Yeah. I having not seen the previous episode, but having seen the previous clip show, I did think to myself, it would, this would be a hilarious perp walk, but I guess they're not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there were some, it just, that was kind of hastily thrown together to make sure that Frank was out of the picture so that he couldn't come back in to save the day. However, I did think I did like the stuff in Purgatory. I liked seeing Victor Garber as as Ichabod Crane's father. I liked, you know, seeing the 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 sheriff once more and uh I liked what they gave John Cho to do for the most part. Uh, really because I feel like they've done that scene of let me go, I love you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like 1800 times. On this show or just in general? On this show. Huh, okay. Okay. Interesting. You didn't really... I, w- I was fine with it. Uh, I was not particularly enthused to see him brought back to life again. Because it's like, come on, guys. How many times are you going to have that happen in this episode? So that, yeah, that, that was, was a bit much. much. But I did like all the fun Masonic crypt stuff. And the notion of zombie George Washington was, was entertaining. And I was really engaged by particularly the sister relationship of, of Jenny and Abby that's been when the show has been at its best for me, when it's been sort of a trio with the two sisters and with uh, Ichabod, not just with Abby and Ichabod. So I'm hoping to see a greater role for, for Jenny next season. Yeah. I mean, I guess having a two hour finale was unfortunate for me because it really gave me the time to soak in the fact that Sleepy Hollow is pretty much the same show every 10 minutes at a time, which is to say, follow the clue. The clue gets us another clue. The clue gets us the bad guy. The bad guy gets away, but we get another clue. The clue leads us to the next clue. You know, you see where I'm going with this? And then the finale is sort of like a much bigger, higher stakes version of that. And then they're going to reset in season two. And we've got a clue. It just, <laughs> I just, it all, and the you know, quip, sorry, let me do that over. Quip, we've got a clue. Clue, quip, we've got a clue. Clue, quip, etc. You know, it's, it's fun. It's fun while you're watching it. But again, in terms of lasting impact on my brain. Not so much. Yep. I can't really argue with that. Uh, but at least it is very enjoyable uh, popcorn, if, that, if that's what it is, uh, televisual popcorn. And uh, I will, I did, you know, this was the show, the new show that I always wanted to be watching the next day or the, the, the evening of. This was the one that I would, you know, kind of rush to, to watch it on my DVR as opposed to wait a couple days and then make time for it like most of the new shows this year. So I do have to give the, the show credit for that. And we'll see what everybody else has to say. The fan reaction has been very positive. 
there's there's been a lot of uh, really enthusiastic response to this finale. So I'm sure we'll hear from a few people saying that we're absolutely crazy for not being more uh, enamored of this finale. Simon, what wins your week in genre? Ooh. Um, actually, I'm going to give it to Adventure Time, <laughs> which we didn't <laughs> review, but they had a genre-y episode this week in, involving a in, involving a new sword that I don't want to spoil, but it was funny and warm and had a, a nice twist on a familiar ending that I haven't really seen before. So, yeah, secret unfair winner. <laughs> and I'll give it to uh, if we count last year's shows I'll give it to In the Flesh if that doesn't really that's you know not really airing this week um, so if you take that out of contention it goes to Sleepy Hollow for me and um, we'll see what uh, what we have next week next week it's pretty much just Coven unless there's you know maybe we'll have to dip back in with Helix or some of these other shows oh god do we have to <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out let us know if there's a genre show that you want us to be checking out Teen Wolf I've seen the premiere of Teen Wolf I could I could dive back in and see what the uh what has come next for our intrepid heroes who are currently going crazy spoiler alert the werewolves are sexy <laughs> well anyways for now let's take a break and come back with our week in drama In drama, we have the Sherlock premiere, the Empty Hearse, we have Parenthood Jump Ball, True Detective, Seeing Things, and Justified, The Kids Aren't Alright. But before we dive into that, I wanted to mention, since we don't have a reality section this week, we decided to, to give reality another week off, I wanted to mention Time of Death, and this was the best place to put it. This is a documentary series that aired on Showtime last year, and I wasn't able to get to it before the end of the year. I've, I've only seen the first episode so far. But it's really good, guys. It's really good. And um, I expect to be sobbing every week. Not Maybe not sobbing, but definitely hugely emotionally affected. It's a series that follows pe people who are in hospice care and basically approaching their death and their families and talk to, talking to the both the people who are dying and also their families before and then, of course, the families afterwards. And uh, it, it shows... A depiction of what the end of life is like for a lot of people that we don't see ever on television and it was hugely emotional there's one it sounds, sounds like each episode follows two groups of people there's one that is a through line throughout the entire season and there's there's each episode has another person who's also uh, going through this process and um, if if the rest of the season is as good as the first episode. Um, it probably would have made my top 10 of the year last year. So it's really good. You guys should check it out. Hot damn. 
Yeah, I've probably overhyped it for you all now. I'm sure Element of Discovery was in there for me as well, but it's it's really good. Everybody should check it out. Let's move on. Speaking of overhyped. Speaking of yeah, let's let's move on to the Sherlock premiere, The Empty Hearse. It, this one I've seen the entire season and so it I'm going to make sure I don't spoil anything for you guys. And so there I'm going to do that by just mostly turning things over to Simon. Simon, what did you think of this premiere and uh did it help that I tried to temper expectations a bit? Not really. And I'm speaking as someone who's never been as big a fan of Sherlock as many other people. Like, I'm not as big a, a naysayer on it as I am with Doctor Who, but I, I've never been quite on board. And I think this premiere totally illustrates why I was right to never totally be on board, which is that uh, it's... This conception of Sherlock on the show is not nearly as interesting as the show thinks it is. And I think that became really, really clear in this episode in particular, wherein it seems like since coming back from the dead, Sherlock is even more superpowered than ever before. It was most glaring in that one scene when he enters the restaurant where Watson's about to try to get engaged and he assesses everything there is to know about the hostess by looking at her for a split second. She's like, okay, even for Sherlock's deductive powers, that was ridiculously insane. Uh, they've elaborated on the visual style in ways that I think are garish and unfortunate. The The plot really doesn't, ha I mean, there really isn't much of a plot. It seems like half of the episode is taken up with, let's all just be really happy that Sherlock's back and just gloss over the fact that it was completely sociopathic and insane. Um, stop me at any time. <laughs> I can't. Uh, the trouble that I have with this season of Sherlock is that as much as I do really enjoy the first two seasons and these performances and elements of the season, it still has the same Moffat problem that Doctor Who has right now and has had for quite a while. It, the, I was sort of waiting for that to seep over into Sherlock. And here it is this season because Sherlock, like you said, no longer really feels like a character. They've, they've taken him further and further into super being uh, this season. And he, he's basically Batman meets Jesus. Like he's got the resurrection angle of Jesus, but he's got the tool belt by which I mean, Mycroft and you know, mm -hmm. this, this, the, the super everything else. He's got this little Superman in there too. Well, there's, you know, the, this modification they've made to the text on screen idea that they've done, I'm really not a fan of, where they just blur, throw all the words up there at once. And the, the point of having the text on screen originally was to let you into Sherlock's mind so that you can see what he's seeing so he doesn't have to monologue. And that's great. That worked really well. And then this season, they have all the words go up at once so you can't possibly read them all so that they can have him monologue. So what was what was the point if we were supposed to be able to follow along with him because we're seeing what he's seeing we can't see what he's seeing if he can process all that information that quickly cuz we're not super geniuses as much as I'm sure we'd like to think we are at times yeah well and it and it just makes you feel like you're watching a show about an alien yeah, exactly and it's it's not interested in him as a person it's interested in look how clever he is and in so all of the 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 doctor who problems of puzzle solving and this doesn't make character sense or narrative sense but who isn't it clever 
it, it, that's here in spades and i think it's never more e evident than the approach that they take with solving how he did it i said last last year or two years ago whenever it was that the finale aired it like it didn't seem like how could he possibly have done it? It's like it seemed like it was pretty straightforward. He jumped off of a thing onto a thing, and then he made sure he switched the thing out. I'm trying to be non-specific in case someone is listening who hasn't seen the episode yet, but it seems like it was very straightforward. And the answer that we get in this is this episode is very straightforward. But rather than embrace that and move on, they feel the need to give these ridiculous, outlandish scenarios. We have the whole fan sub you know stand in that we have with uh that we've seen on Doctor Who before but we have it here as well that is completely undeveloped completely unnecessary and a waste of time and I, I I'm sure Moffat thinks that he's being embracing a fan culture but it really feels very insulting it condescending at best oh I mean, yes and the problem all that stuff is all terrible but I think the real problem with treating Sherlock like he's you know not human is that that then impacts all the other characters as well yeah. in a negative way. I mean, Martin Freeman is amazing, especially in this episode. He's, he's just fantastic, but it makes you wonder why he, you know, when he, when he says that, Oh, he's the best and the smartest man he's ever known or whatever it is. He says like, really mm. this guy, <laughs> <laughs> him, but, um, and you know, also because he's, he's basically a super person it doesn't make sense that he cares so much about Watson. Why does he, why is it so important that he has to go back and mend fences with Watson and have him there on the case? Why isn't it good enough that Molly's there? All he really needs apparently is someone to just stand around and watch him be brilliant. Yeah. Cause Watson doesn't do anything. Well, they don't give him much to do that. I do think that what works and for me works really well in this premiere are the, the Sherlock and Watson scenes and the Sherlock and Mycroft scenes. And I, I really do like in this episode, we'll see how that develops over the course of talking about the entire season. I really do like the character that's introduced the, the foil for, for Watson. And, um, you know, the, I do think each of those, those character moments work really well. It's when you get into the larger elements of the plot, which aren't always connected with, with the, uh, the character moments. That's where I find the biggest problem. So, you know, ooh, look at Sherlock being clever is not interesting to me and is really a law of diminishing returns. Look at Sherlock respond to Watson being angry. That is interesting to me. Yeah. But like you said, that like that's a very minor consideration over the course of these 90 minutes. Mostly it's let's watch Sherlock be better than everyone else. And yeah. isn't that good enough in and of itself? And no, it's not. And and just to to underline the point, what you said about how the actual explanation of Sherlock's non-death is really simple. And you're right. They don't embrace it. They tell you, <laughs> they basically, they lay it out several different ways, several different times. And really the way it actually happened is not that different from the very silly way we see it first happen in the episode. Hmm. And it feels like it's all an effort to disguise the fact that, yeah, it is actually really straightforward. And you're right. They could have embraced it. Instead, they decided to make a really, basically like a huge pun on behalf of the fan base which was just why are you wasting half of a 90 minute episode with this yeah well there's larger stu structural problems in the in these episodes it's it continues throughout the season unfortunately and uh and you said earlier the visual element not only do i hate the new way they're doing the the text on screen but the mind palace no no guys no 
don't do the mind palace. Um, oh, and what they did to Molly was cruel. I did yeah. not like that. Not a fan. Let's leave it there unless there's more. Nope. No, there's other stuff to talk about. Are you going to watch the rest of the season? Oh, yeah. It's too much fun to bitch about. Come on. <laughs> okay. Speaking of, let's move into parenthood jump ball. And uh... <sighs> parenthood. Yeah. Unlike Sherlock, I'm rooting for you, parenthood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not rooting against Sherlock, but I'm rooting for Parenthood. And yeah, it's making it hard lately. Yeah, they really, they uh, they lost me with this one. And there were elements of it that I thought were really well. I liked everything with Hank. And uh, I thought the stuff with Amber, which is becoming very much a law of diminishing returns. Because it feels like they, they've they been playing the same note far too frequently with her. They need to give the fabulous Mae Whitman something else to do. You know, Forte all the time gets old you need some pianos in there too uh so so we'll see if they can you know keep that interesting with her and of course camille comes back this week and i have some thoughts on that and i'm curious what you think about that but joel and julia i feel like i gotta you know sit joel and julia down and actually you know, introduce it to them to people who actually have real marital problems because what we see here is ridiculous if we're supposed to, if this is supposed to be a long simmering slow deconstruction of the marriage we needed way more time with them instead joel doesn't want to talk about anything and decides he's gonna leave his leave his his wife and move out and he sits down and watches his kids sleep and then comes to this conclusion after they've been having a hard time for a month how long has it been I don't, a month sounds generous. I mean, and as you said to me elsewhere, you know, we've looked at people have real problems on this show. Yeah, a lot of and them. Like, and and weather real storms. So to have this, the only explanation I saw this floated elsewhere is like, are they trying to get rid of the guy playing Joel? Like, his, is he just tired of not having anything to do? So he's looking for a way out. But even then, I can't imagine them ever just getting rid of him, period, unless he dies. Like, he's always going to be around. So, yeah, I just don't see any good way forward with this, except for them just to, to say that they poochied the whole scenario and they need to start over. Well, and it just feels completely out of character with everything else we've seen from from Joel. Granted, Joel's gotten a lot to do in the past couple of seasons, but but still, how is this the same person? How how does How does Joel decide he's not even going to try to repair his marriage so quickly when he spent all of last season working tirelessly to help Victor transition into being part of this family. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's mind boggling. There's gotta be something going on behind the scenes that we're going to find out about in years to come. Cause it's the only thing, it's the only possible explanation. Well, and even if that is the case and they need to get the, the actor off the show or something's going on, who knows what they've got to be able to do a better job than this. And the, you know, Erica Christensen has been acting her butt off doing her best, but the the material from the, the writing has not been there to make this storyline work. And uh, actors can only do so much. You almost have like a meta quality to her performance right now where she's frustrated and you, it feels like she's just frustrated with the show. Like you just want her to keep turning to the camera and be like, Kadams, what's going on? <laughs> And I honestly, the guy should maybe he just shouldn't be allowed to manage more than one show at a time. Because who knows? I don't think he can do it. Yeah. Items. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I look forward to your thoughts on about a boy when when you get a chance to see it. I did really enjoy that that pilot, and I look forward to watching that when it premieres here pretty soon. Um, but I do want to get your thoughts on Camille and Zeke because I was having some trouble with with that this week because. 
I was picking up on, and I'm curious if this is just in my head or if this is something you're picking up on as well. I was picking up on a level of, uh, of not misogyny, but of be a real man and tell me I can't do stuff. Rebellion sort of from, from Camille. Like she wants him to tell her that she does that he doesn't want her to go or do he doesn't want her to do these things because you know or something like that like she's pushing him trying to get a response and that's why she's you know throwing all of this stuff at him all at once and not just talking to him is that just me um they could be doing that i think it's more likely that she just wants to get a response of some kind Mm -hmm. i don't think she's necessarily looking for talk me out of this because i mean she's obviously enjoying herself she's not pretending to enjoy herself in the hopes that he'll pull her away from all of her fun times Mm -hmm. i don't think that's what i don't think that's a reasonable oh god i hope that's not what they're doing i think that she wants there to be a dialogue at least i god what this is the better idea like the better idea is is for them is for her to want to dialogue me for trying to you know have one happen the worst option that they might actually be doing is just that they've had a communication breakdown and she has no idea that he's upset about all this, which would be really dumb. Well, because it doesn't sound like she's trying to open up a dialogue because what she says is she gives a, she doesn't give an ultimatum, but what she says is I'm going to do this and I know you don't want to sell the house and that's too bad because I'm going to keep doing this other stuff. And so that doesn't seem like that's someone trying to open up a dialogue. I think in a way it is. I think she's she's trying to say, if it, like, you are unable to live with some compromise, so I'm just going to do this. And until you can compromise in some way, this is what life is going to be like. That, to me, is a different thing from tell me not to do this. I guess. I don't know. It feels like there's a more interesting or a more nuanced way to handle some of these exchanges, I guess, is what I'm... What, it was, bother me because because i yes i i agree she you know these are interesting fun things for her to do but the way she's phrasing how she's expressing herself feels very much like she wanted you know she like she she doesn't say i really want to stay for this next week in uh in italy is is that all right with you i know you'd like me to come home but is that all right she phrases unless you don't want me to Mm-hmm. And that feels very loaded to me. That's true. I mean, I guess we'll have to see. You you make a good point. I oh, I really hope that's not what they're doing. Now you've got me worried. But I I think it's a credit to the show and both actors that there is any mystery there, and the mystery will hopefully not be deflated by that terrible suggestion you've just floated. Yeah, yeah. Hope we'll we'll see. We'll see. I've. It was just sort of you know. Yeah, I think ping, it was pinging in the back of my brain while I was being frustrated about uh, Joel and Julia. Uh, let's move on to True Detective seeing things. And uh, this is the second episode. I thought it was a really strong one, a strong follow-up to our premiere that we talked about, the pilot that we talked about last week. And I like this whole notion of potential drug-induced visions. You know, uh, I like what we find out about McConaughey this week. Less interested in what we find out about Woody Harrelson. Uh, what about this episode worked for you or, and what didn't? And how are you feeling about the season moving forward i think my broader issue with true detective right now and i'm hoping it's something that gets alleviated later is kind of similar to what's happening with sherlock which is that too much of the show seems to be about mcconaughey being brilliant and everyone else having to sort of pivot around him 
And I think it's a problem that when we do get time without him, like Woody Harrelson and Michelle Monaghan, that stuff feels very rote. It's stuff, or even the stuff with Monaghan's family. For for instance, when Woody Harrelson says something to her about, oh, you're such a ball buster, even your mom thinks you're such a ball buster. It's like, what have we seen from her to substantiate us viewing this conversation? Well, the only thing we've seen is the exact opposite, is the mom saying, I know you're unhappy, talk to me about it, or maybe not in a support, it has a very supportive way, but we've seen the exact opposite from the mom. So actually that one, I was fine with that because it just showed how out of touch he is with her and her family. Okay, fair enough. But the the, the whole dis- discussion between them where, and it, I think Monaghan's really good in these scenes and it makes them a little bit fresher in that sense, but that whole argument of she knows exactly what's going on and he's lying about it and blah, blah, blah. Like, we've seen these beats so many times with cops, with cop characters, with detective characters. I don't need to see this again. Let's do anything else with that. And the scenes with the mistress were even worse. Well, and we also see that scene in the future or in the present, however you want to phrase it, where he's talking about basically he has no remorse about cheating on his wife. Uh, and so that tells you a lot about where that arc is likely headed in in the uh, the past storyline when he talks about how you know the cases these kind of cases will mess up you mess you up and you have to take your release where you can find it and so that you can be a good father and come home to your kids so that tells you everything you need to know about you know what's going to happen moving forward and that's somewhat of a dis- was somewhat of a disappointment to me unless there's a shakeup coming soon that you know that we don't know about uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's either Michelle Monaghan gets nothing to do or gets horribly murdered. It's one or the other. But anyway. Yeah, but if she got horribly murdered, he would, you know, not be happy. He'd probably be less flippant about having cheated on That's his wife. That's true, yeah. Well, you, you would think so, wouldn't you? But anyway. <laughs> but as far as what I was saying earlier about people just reacting to McConaughey, like it's, it just seems like they're letting McConaughey's rust do most of the heavy lifting detective wise, and then deciding to focus on Harrelson's home life, which to me is kind of unwise because there's just nothing. Pizzolatto doesn't seem to have any new thoughts about what a detective's home life is like. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on the whole vision thing? Uh, I thought that was kind of neat. I mean, it, although I, I feel like they're hitting backstory saturation with rust or mm-hmm. very close to it. So I'm really hoping that there's not, more stuff we're going to find out about him in more hidden files because then it's just going to get silly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, this, this worked, but uh, I, I agree. I don't think we need a lot more <laughs> moving forward. And uh, the only other thing I'll say is I really hope the show doesn't think it's going to be a surprise that these detectives are invest are, are thinking that Russ is the killer. Uh, well, we let's let's wait and see what exactly they're they're doing with that. I mean, it's possible that that itself is a ruse because we don't know. Like we're only we two don't episodes know. in, we we don't know exactly what the approach is going to be. I mean, I I do like the the other detective characters, and they're probably playing it a little cagier than they absolutely need to be for storytelling purposes. But there's definitely I'm still finding the past present interplay to be interesting. It's just again with I feel like we go through this with every new murder mystery series. There's so many ways they can cock this up, and I'm just hoping none of those happen. If they can manage, honestly, if they can manage just not to screw things up, it'll already be better than most other series of of this ilk. So, so far, so good on the big stuff, I would say. 
Okay, and we'll check in next week with episode three, but let's finish out our week in drama with Justified. The kids aren't all right. And uh, this was, I had seen the first two when we talked about this in our season preview, our mid-season preview, and, and I was much more positive in general than you were. And uh, so now we're at that point. Why are you not more positive on this episode? Because it was awesome. It's a good episode. It's Justified. It's good. Sorry, I mean, it's Justified. So it's good, but you know, it's the Justified's got way higher gears than this. I mean, first of all, very little actually happens in this episode, uh, especially by Justified standards, which is a little bit worrisome for early season Justified. Like trying to think back, okay, so we had the adventure with Loretta, which was great. We get to see her once every two seasons now, I guess. Thank, thanks, Last Man Standing. Although I recently found out that Natalie Z's character on the following mm-hmm. is dead. So I don't give a fuck about spoiling the following. So, <laughs> sorry about that if you didn't get to the following premieres. I was like, does this mean they get to bring Natalie Z back? Mm. Anyway, I'm still thinking about that. But um, so, yeah, the stuff with Loretta is fine. And it's a good way to bring up Braylon's parenting anxiety. Probably it's the best part of the episode. The whole misadventure with Paxton's uh, wife is less interesting to me, partially because the actress doesn't seem that strong to me, at least so far. I feel like we're supposed to be getting this like animal magnetism between her and Boyd and I'm just not feeling it. Is that oh, just me? Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't picking up that we were supposed to be feeling any sort of physical attraction. I just it got the sense that they respect each other and that they can see like that Boyd can read her and see that she is uh very intelligent and somebody that he respects in that way. Okay. I'm just I'm I'm not going to say anything, but I I think that I'm right and you're wrong. Okay, very we'll see we'll see. There's definitely, you know, there's definitely something that they could play with there. What do you think of the notion of art sort of piecing together the events of last season's finale? I mean, I if Justify is anything to go by, I feel like he's going to figure that out way faster than he would on on any other show. Whether or not that's going to have any long-term ramifications, I really can't decide. I mean, we found out this week that they are for sure ending next season. You know, there's now 24 episodes of Justified left. Just keep that in mind. Um, next, in a couple, by the end of tomorrow, there'll be 23. But, uh, you know, he's not going to sack Raylan. So, I mean, what are they really going to do with that? I think it may end up sort of like a slightly harsher version of what happened when he found out about the whole money theft thing, which is that he was just like, I'm just gonna, what, what exactly do you say? I'm just going to let this sort itself out. I feel like it'll be a variant on that. I don't think it'll be much more serious, but I've been wrong before. Okay. Yeah. I, I look forward to it. I like that they're taking that approach. I think that's nice. Uh, the show has a good track record of series history and bringing elements back. What did you think about the introduction of a couple new players in the, the Harlan drug game? AKA the Harris brothers. Yes. Uh, from The Wire and Awake. Interesting casting. <laughs> Actual brothers playing brothers, which is playing apparently brothers. a rarity for them. Yes. Apparently, semi-spoiler alert, that's not the last time we'll see them. So we can look forward to a reappearance. Uh, I wasn't sure how much I appreciated the whole Seal Team 6 thing. That seemed like a kind of a strained attempt to make them seem more badass. It seemed like kind of a like a late episode insertion. But other than that, I thought they were fine. Not especially memorable in like the pantheon of justified baddies, but that's kind of a long 
shadow anyway. Yeah, this this just felt like uh, filling out the world a bit more, and I expect to see them pop up here and there. I don't I don't think you cast them for two scenes. I don't think yeah, you cast no. those guys for two scenes. But yeah, yeah I, I guess I just was much more positive. I loved every scene we got with Loretta and Raylan, and you know, picking up. I loved the his read on her and uh, the who the troublemaker in that relationship was. I thought that worked really well, and I just had a lot of I just had a blast with it. So I guess I'm I'm still more hopeful about the season moving forward than I think you are. How did you feel about Amy Smart? I think that's good casting and I like I enjoy her, so I look forward to seeing what comes next. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if she sticks around longer than Raylan's quasi love interest from last season. Yeah. He's got a thing for blondes, doesn't he? He does. I like that they've been consistent with that. Yeah, we'll see uh, where, where things go next, but I, I feel like Amy Smart's an underused actress, and so I look forward to what they give her to do. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm again, I look forward to more Justified. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on the episode, or shall we move on to what wins the week? I will give it to... Uh, I'll give it to Justified. Come on, it's still Justified. <laughs> yeah, Justified is definitely winning my week in drama, as much as I did enjoy... Uh, True Detective, uh, I I would give it to Time of Death, actually, over Justified, because it was really good, but that's more of a reality thing. Anyways, Justified wins the week in drama. A few show notes before we go to our DVD shelf, talking with Dave Walker of NOLA and the Times Picking You and about Treme Season 4, as well as a little bit about the series as a whole. Uh, our outro music is Sweet Petite by The Bicycles. You can find a post-up at soundonsite.org. You can leave us a comment there. Let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can also, of course, reach us on Facebook. You can like us there to follow what's going on at Sound of Sight TV. You can also email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and you are... Uh, at Sucker Howell. So, Simon, what's our question of the week? Let's be honest. Most of you have watched Sherlock. Most of you have watched all of Sherlock. We know this because it's been on the internet since it aired in Britain. It also aired in Britain. Most of you have watched all of Sherlock. Yeah, people don't need screeners to have watched all of Sherlock. Yeah. So, you know, let us know if, if I, I guess more specifically, if you think that we're wrong in our, I guess, Sherlock backlash. So, because I know that's a show that has particularly fervent fans. I was one of them for so long. Yeah, oh, well. you were, but you're not faithful enough. Apparently not. Apparently not. Let us know. That's a, that's a great question. And uh, that wraps up our week in TV. So now we'll take a break and come back with Dave Walker of NOLA.com and the Times Picky Ewan to talk Treme. something and look Antoine can't tell you it's gonna get easier so what's the point point is if you're looking for a reason to quit you can find one we love this city but it needs to love us back the paper trail is just too thick now you remember who I am music lives where it lives bro you can't fuck with that Let's go hit it. It's about culture, family, tradition. Indeed. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kolsick, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week at the DVD shelf, we are talking about Treme. 
a show that I love so very much. Uh, we're going to look at not only this last season, season four, but also talk a little bit about the series as a whole. And here to join us on this discussion, once again, Dave Walker from NOLA.com, TV columnist there, as well as, of course, Times Picking You. And Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for coming back. Uh, thank you, and thanks for having me. So glad to talk about Treme again, and I we had a great conversation at the end of season three, and I guess let's just dive in with uh, what did you think overall of of season four? It's a bit of an odd, you know, end to to the show with just a few episodes, but what did you think of this season overall? Well, I think their approach was to consolidate a lot of what was really what I thought was great about the show. They had to kind of constrict some of the characters and some of the storylines that they had um, planned for, you know, 10 seasons back before during season two, while they were shooting season two, I think I've got the chronology, right. Um, the creators went to HBO and said, here's our plan. It's for season three and season four, 20 episodes or whatever it would be. And they went to them then with that plan. So they'd been thinking about where they would get to in this last half season for a long time. Um, and so, I think they had to pull back a little bit on a couple of the characters. Uh, Eric Obermeyer, one of the co-creators, told me, and I, I actually have an interview with him running later this month to coincide with the DVD release of the complete series. And he said that they would have loved to give Sonny a little more out uh, time um, because he was really not in season four very much. And he had become a really important character to the show, important to the writers in showing um, you know, addiction and overcoming that. He was also a kind of a bridge to the Vietnamese community in New Orleans, which is an important part of the New Orleans story. Um, and I think they sort of felt they had to cut that short. They um, And we're proceeding here as if everyone listening has seen everything and we don't have to worry about spoilers, right? Yes, yes. Okay, okay. Um, you know, they gave him a really nice uh, last minute sort of farewell from Annie, uh, which I thought was a great way to end it. I think the other thing that I think would have been different with a longer season would have been a little bit more patience with um, uh, Albert's storyline. Um, he was feeling good right away, and then it ended pretty quickly in TV time for him. Although, you know, um, uh, November through Mardi Gras that year was just a couple of three months. So, um, you know, on the whole, I thought. Uh, it was a really satisfying conclusion to the story. And I also think it um, paid off a lot of the narrative energy that the the writers had been building from the very beginning. Um, I also thought that it was a great Treme kind of conclusion in that I always thought, and I thought this with The Sopranos too, that we had a window onto these characters for a while and the window opened and we could watch um, them do their work and try to rebuild the city in their own lives in this time period. And then the conclusion came and the window closed and their lives keep going on. New Orleans is still out there. You know, it's still a couple of years, three or four years ago in that world. And that's why I thought the last montage and the last um, sort of fade out there under Bigney Street where the pothole was, was uh, uh, and of course the last great John Butte performance on the soundtrack. I thought that was a really great way to end it, and um, um, so I was really, really satisfied. It's funny I asked Eric if he ever indulges in uh, wondering what his characters were are doing on in this show's case, wondering what the characters are doing on December thirtieth, the morning after the show ends. And um, he recalled a story, a famous story, where an actress 
asked uh, a director, well, I exit uh, this scene and my character goes through that door and, and then what? And uh, the director says, she goes to the green room. Uh, and <laughs> it's funny how uh, creators and writers think about that. And, and David Simon said pretty much the same thing to me. It's, he says, their lives go on and New Orleans is what it is. So uh, in that way, I, I'm not missing them. I thought they got, had a pretty good run. 36 episodes for a show that's about weird things like creativity and, you know, a show built around one of the main characters who does nothing, almost nothing but sew a lot of time on screen. Um, the fact that we got 36 plus hours with those characters was pretty cool, I thought. I think that's a, that's a great point, uh, Dave. And I was think, enjoying thinking of of where these characters would be. And that's actually the big difference I see in the end of uh, of this season as opposed to the end of season three. I thought it was a very interesting contrast where you had in Tipitina this beautiful coming together of all of the characters and, you know, working their way to that that fantastic party and then here instead ending with this what is it like almost 10 minute long montage of everybody completely in their own lives separate but moving forward with their lives in in a very interesting way and and closing with that image of the of the pothole i thought that was absolutely beautiful i was i saw in that uh the show's approach to what the city what the show always was but also what the city is which was this crumbling infrastructure of a pothole that clearly is not getting taken care of by the people who should take care of it. But through, you know, people coming together with Davis making the pothole man and then all of the citizens of New Orleans kind of making it into this bizarre kind of beautiful sculpture thing in the middle of, of just a regular street. I thought it was a really nice final image for the show. Yeah. And I, I loved how they, the pothole was sort of a character in the whole five episode arc. He, he, I think of it as a male. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. probably, but he was always sort of there a little bit in each uh, episode. And, and I I agree completely. I think they wanted to establish that as a metaphor. Uh, And I think I wrote a couple of weeks ago that it was, it became a metaphor for the city. It's uh, broken, but pretty. And um, I just think it was a great, great concluding note for what they'd been trying to say um pretty much all along with the show yeah. well i would add i would add to that the idea that you know the the season starts with the pothole and him sort of building this pothole man which i didn't even figure out was a man until or a person until way later um but and then it, it starts off as a protest and a sort of silly thing to have this really you know to have a structure in the middle of a road is just the most impractical thing ever but then after a while, people sort of make it their own, and you get the sense that when someone gets around to tearing it down and fixing it up, it'll just be a shame. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which again, is another sort of handy little synecdoche for the whole show. Yeah, and that's also something that people in New Orleans can relate to intimately and tragically, in that there's places, there are memorials like that all over the city where it actually starts as a way to mark this terrible thing so other poor people don't drive into it. And whole trees grow, Christmas trees are decorated. I actually went out, there's a pothole that I ran through a couple of times around the block from my house. And this is just part of life in New Orleans. And I actually went to a big box store and bought my own like cone 
to put there so that until they fixed it, then my neighbors wouldn't keep driving through it too, because it could have been there for years. And so the fact that it, you know, the Mardi Gras beads on it and it felt, it just feels like part of the family after a while um, in the show and all over town. And David Simon told Alan Sepinwall that he watched that happen to a pothole near his house in New Orleans. So it's, it's completely from life. That's great. And uh, yeah, for me, that also marks an, a change in the show for, for Davis and what his role has been. I think he's always been sort of um, an element to, to bring different storylines together throughout the series. But particularly in this last season, I felt like he was the through line. And he, when he was connecting all these different areas, I think as soon as they hooked him up with Nelson, that really helped tie that character in in a way that he hadn't really earlier. He would felt a little more, you know, separated out. But when you talk about Sonny having a decreased role, I thought his final moment with, with Annie was beautiful. I was surprised how moved I was by that. Um, but, but there are definitely some characters that, that due to there only being five episodes were, ha- you know, had to be pushed to the side somewhat, but I appreciate, I appreciated the extra effort to use Davis in this last season to really make all of these lives feel even more connected than they already did in the previous seasons. Personally, I felt like Davis was more useful as connective tissue, by the especially by the end of the show, than he actually was as a character. I don't mean to be mean to Steve Zahn or anyone else uh, connected to the show, because I do think Davis is a great character. But it felt to me that the point of his arc, if you would want to call it that, over these five episodes was that Davis is both is and isn't capable of change. He's, he's capable of, he's driven by the desire to change, but actually can't, which is an interesting idea, but I'm not sure they needed quite as much screen time for him as they used to convey it. If that makes any sense. Oh, boo earns. I disagree. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious how, how, how you read that Dave. Uh, Cause for me that, that last sequence with, I think Davis did change. I think he did become more mature. And obviously, he's not going to stop being DJ Davis. And I think that last moment with him with the protest song or with the with the MLK versus what is it? Godzilla song was 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 fantastic. But I didn't take that as he's not helping out at the restaurant anymore. I took that as while he is doing that ridiculously good job as a head waiter at at the restaurant, he's also still being creative. And so I'm I have a feeling maybe we read that differently, Simon. Uh, well, I mean, it's let, let me put it this way. Like, I, I, I guess if he's not totally incapable of change, he can only do it at an incredibly slow pace. I don't think he necessarily stops working at the restaurant or anything like that. But I think that at the end of the day, he's much he's much closer to the man he's always been than I think he's necessarily comfortable with. What do you think, Dave? Uh, it, it, it's all really interesting to me. I think he's one of the characters who realizes how rooted he is and how established he is. The interesting thing about Davis is that he's established and feels a tug from all different kinds of New Orleans society, both, you know, the Bohemian music, WWOZ side, and the fact that he was sort of born to the uptown part of life in New Orleans. And, I think a lot of it was sort of coming to grips with that he was who he was and the city was going to be who it's going to be. And, you know, what a, what an odd thing for a show to so 
uh, subtly try to portray uh, the aging of an adult, of a male into a, a kind of adulthood. Um, not much TV deals with those themes. It's either what it's like to be a perpetual adolescent or whatever comes way after that. He's sort of in those kind of middle years and New Orleans allowed him to kind of hang on to that. And, and it will for the rest of his life. I think I get the feeling he'll be on the radio sermonizing sometimes for the rest of his life. And I think the choice of Davis as sort of the character who could reach into all these different worlds and know all the characters, he would know Antoine, he would know Tony, he would know Jeanette, um, because he's in all those different parts of New Orleans society. Also, the fact that he works at WWOZ, there's also another kind of umbrella over all those parts of society. And, and that's not overstated in the show at all. Um, in fact, one of my favorite moments of the whole series was when Terry drove out of range of WWOZ um, on his way up I-59, I think was the route. That really is the 20 or 30 mile zone. Um, I don't know how long they recently improved their signal. Um, so it probably is farther than it used to be, but that really is something and maybe cyclically or seasonally at certain times of year that, that everybody in the city is linked to not everybody listens to it all the time. Everybody likes country music and hip hop. And, you know, there's a vibrant radio, broad radio scene in New Orleans, like there's everywhere, but OZ is one of those things. And so anyway, to have Davis as, you know, uh, as for OZ to be his sort of platform, I thought was um, really right and a r really good connection to the character. I think you're both right in some ways about him. He was, you know, he was interesting in that people just hated that character the first however many episodes. And some people just never got over it. I think he actually caused a lot of people to bail on the show. He and Sonny early on were were lightning rods for people and just they couldn't deal with just their their dudeness um, <laughs> in, in, in some ways. But, you know, I think they both got some redemption um, toward the end with Davis sort of hanging on. And, you know, Sonny's playing in that band in the last in the montage. Right. Sonny's playing guitar with Davis Rogan and. Um, and the, I think, I mean, that's my recollection. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Kid. yeah. Yeah. And so he's going to kind of hang on to that piece of what his life was like when we first met him. And which I think is really cool. It's a realization that I'm not going to be the first or second call guitar player in new Orleans. There's, there's going to be a lot better guitar players than I am, but, uh, I'll hang on to this. And I, I know and people know a lot of musicians here in new Orleans that are like that. So and I, I, I would that answer your question. I would just add, I mean, I always did like Davis as being the sort of bond that that brought everyone together in one strange way or another because it's sort of, a, I would say, a, a larger comment on sort of the usefulness of sort of curatorial forces, and I mean, which, which I think DJs represent. And I think that people underestimate the life of a musician, but I think also people really underestimate what a good DJ can do and how difficult it is to, to have and, and maintain that kind of knowledge base. And that can be, you know, I think people's lack of placing stock in that can be seen in sort of the clear channel, clear channelization of uh, radio that's happened over the last, oh, I don't know, 20, 30 years, maybe longer. 
and uh, it's not it's not something that the the show like really tried to hammer home in a in a super overt way, but it is something I've always appreciated that it does in a in a nice, quiet, reserved fashion. If anything yeah, about I, Davis can be said to be reserved. No, no, I totally agree, and I I think OZ uh, WWZ is populated by people not exactly like him, but also people who for just for the fact that they devote so much time and attention to what they're doing, see themselves as culture carriers, just as the Indians do or might. And just as the culinary people do, it's there's, I mean, it's all volunteer for the most part. They, and um, the other point I want to make about Davis was early on when people were freaked out by him, people in the city were talking about the things he was talking about. All that stuff was at stake three months after Katrina no one, no one knew if the things that made New Orleans um, what it was before the storm would would survive. And so people talked about it all the time. It was a conversational currency all the time uh, for the people who were back and worried about it and thinking about it and the people who were away. People in New Orleans were talking about those things the way he talked about them early on after the storm because – so much was in jeopardy. And uh, so I think it was a pretty accurate reflection there. Maybe not with quite the zeal or enthusiasm, but it was a kind of conversation that people had here every day about the things that people loved about New Orleans and that the things they knew were at risk but needed to be preserved. So he was a, a guy who, um, who, who got to say those things on the show. Well, and I can't talk about uh, Davis, particularly in this last season, without mentioning I loved Sing, Sing, Sing so much. It's one of my favorite songs ever. I'm particularly fond of the Benny Goodman version myself. But to see that that live uh, performance of that in the, the penultimate episode was just made me just so happy. Do you guys have a particular musical moment from this last season that, st- that stands out uh, for you like that? I would say I think that with the Annie plotline, they did a reasonably good job of showing the progression between the, the music she was already playing and then sort of the class she had in Nashville. I think they went too far with the sort of slick stuff that she was having a problem with when they were doing this glaring autotune stuff. And I, and I thought, OK, no Nashville country record is going to sound that glaringly autotuned. But I think that the final result is the sort of compromise position where they're doing songs that are maybe a little bit broader in terms of audience base, but she manages to do do it in a way that syncs up with her style and her energy. I thought that was actually really, really well done. And of course, having Sonny there for that performance was incredibly touching. Uh, it was. Well, the interesting thing about the um, the Nashville band is that those were real Nashville guys. I don't, um, I don't think I had it in any of my stories, but most of them have played with Sheryl Crow widely and for a long time, but they're Nashville based and are really ace players. Um, uh, that's one of the storylines that I think bugged people and, and uh, Annie's vector in the show. But I also thought it was a kind of a way to demonstrate about what the sort of what the escape trajectory can be for people. Um, that's not answering your question, which I'll do right now. I love seeing Ellis Marsalis in Treme. Um, you know, the patriarch of the Marsalis family and, um, you know, a, uh, titan of New Orleans jazz 
And uh, I thought that was just as moving to me as the Fats Domino um, episode because it was, you know, they they didn't hammer up and over the changes. It was just very understated, and he got to play a little bit. And it, it, I just think they handled that really well, and I was really thrilled to see him, um, Ellis Marsalis, finally on on screen. Definitely, and another standout for me. This I, I like that they they saved Doctor John. For the finale, there was a real sense of, uh, well, you know, everybody enjoys Dr. D- Dr. John. We're going to put him in the finale. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it also was, it paid off. I don't remember what episode it was where Antoine was possibly considered for a Dr. John gig. I think it might have been in the first season. I don't remember. But they, I mean, that was sort of a callback payoff to a series long kind of quest for him. And that sort of showed. Like just like his second line jam session sequence sort of showed that he wanted to keep one foot in who he was, um, even though as his new life was kind of proceeding with the band kids. Um, it, so it showed some progression, but it also showed um, some stability in the New Orleans that he knew. Definitely. So that's why I, I love the Dr. John sequence too. And, and I would say that sort of motif of people coming on these, I guess, this place of compromise where they've got one foot in one world and one foot in another, I think it stretches to the whole show as this theme of rejecting absolutes. You know, none of these characters ends with, you know, the easy thing to do with Sonny, of course, would have been to have him die in a ditch somewhere because he never got over his problems. But the harder thing to try to dramatize is getting over that and getting to a new place without losing what came before and probably that sense of trying to dramatize something much more nuanced and realistic is what cost the show viewers in the first place, but sticking to their guns like that in the finale and, and sort of rejecting sort of more overt senses of closure, I think was really brave. And I I would say that this whole last half season kind of felt like one long episode to me. It felt like a stretched out version of the wires finale in a sense where it's, it, it didn't have that same sense of psych, uh, sort of cycles, but it did have that same sense of, of life goes on and, and, you know, New Orleans keeps, keeps being New Orleans the same way Baltimore keeps being Baltimore. And you've got an equal mix of stasis and change, and that's how it is. You live with it. They had a real interesting compositional thing to get to exactly what you're saying uh, with the five episodes as sort of a piece is that they jumped in history. I mean, like we started in episode one of this season and LaDonna and Larry were already done. Um, and Jeanette was already out of Desatels and starting her new place. They, I mean, that's some of the stuff they skipped. They wanted to end at Mardi Gras or right after Mardi Gras. And, and that's sort of what I think that kind of compression gave it the five, the five hour one episode feel. I think that's a really a uh, great observation because it did feel like that. It did feel, um, the way the arcs worked for the characters through those five as sort of one extended episode. I agree. I agree with that, actually, that sentiment. As much as I'd like to talk about some of these other characters, and before we run out of time and I forget, I just got to mention with Antoine, the, uh, the that storyline with the, the students, and that just about killed me. When I found out that, that was based on an actual thing that happened, it was incredibly powerful, and I can't imagine what that was like to watch for people who actually knew those those real-life um, students. Um, do you have, we have any thoughts on that element of, of Antoine's story and also there? Uh, yeah, it's actually based on Keith Hart, who plays uh, Mr. LaCour 
I think that's how the name is pronounced, who plays the other band director who leaves Antoine to take these kids. Um, all of that actually happened to him. A lot of, you know, Antoine's character is based on several different guys and um, they, that happened to him while they were shooting this show. Um, and so that, that was one of the kind of breathtaking moments um, in the series for people who are watching locally because, um, and I, I think I linked to several different stories that showed um, witness intimidation or elimination as being one of the, um, you know, um, one of the compounding problems about New Orleans crime. Um, in, and so um, I just thought that it was just incredibly sad, but also incredibly real. The uh, other element that we got to make sure to talk about, because we've been talking for almost a half an hour, and we haven't talked about Albert at all, or really LaDonna. Uh, what did you guys think of, of the handling of that storyline? And for, for me, we got to the second to last episode, and, and he dies, and I was surprised, but then realized I shouldn't have been, because it feels so much more... I kept waiting for the big emotional final scene that characters who are dying of cancer always get on television, and then, and then, of course, that didn't happen. And I realized, wait a second, this is Treme. This is not television. This is Treme. This is <laughs> they were never going to do a big emotional final scene. His big emotional final scene was going to see Delmon play in, at New Year's, and and so I thought the handling of that was actually really beautiful. Well, I, I would say that the way that that this half season handled Albert and Ladonna and their relationship and his death, that whole aspect of it really reinforced the feeling for me of that this season felt more like an epilogue than like, you know, like a really long epilogue rather than a, a, another proper season. But I actually, my favorite thing about that whole plot line was the way they handled Delmond and his, his promise to his father that he was going to, you know, that he was going to don the, don the uniform and make that walk. And then what actually ends up happening followed by his conversation with, with his wife about how they're going to handle the raising of their child. I think that was one of the most beautiful il illustrations of, uh, again, that, that sense of staying true to yourself while, um, while living your life in a realistic fashion that is acceptable to, you know, to you personally. And I thought everything about that was again, not conventionally handled, but very realistically. Yeah. My favorite, um, my favorite thing for Albert was when he went out with his daughter to look at his old neighborhood. Um, I didn't know until after way after that it was actually based on, uh, Paul Boyer, who's a, um, radio personality in new Orleans. His daughter, Lindsay Boyer did the blogging, the official HBO blogging for the show this season. And George Pelicanos went out, and talked to Paul Boyer about where he grew up. And it was actually, it was that they went to that neighborhood and, and told stories that Paul told George um, about what life was like when you had to take the Elysian Fields bus and there were um, segregated sections on that bus. And, and I mean, that's just like completely right exactly from a, a personal history of growing up in that exact neighborhood and to use that as a way to uh, allow Albert to sort of say goodbye while he was still strong and still himself, to me that was sweet, bittersweet, and and a great way for him to sort of say goodbye to his city. And you're right, they didn't, again, they didn't play pound up and over the changes like a drummer 
hitting everything too hard on the one, he sort of got to fade away a little bit. And, and that put the emphasis on the characters, the people around him. I thought it was very much like real life. Um, and also not something that TV does very much in how they portray the last part of the journey for people and the people around them. And I thought it was really real and sad, but also life affirming in a lot of ways because the culture that met, meant so much to the chief was going to continue and and he died knowing that and whether it does or not whether Delmon ends up in new york and really doesn't spend as much time in the tradition as his dad did and i don't think you can say from how the show ended what that's going to be but um yeah i agree and and of course uh, candy alexander you know majestic all the way through and one of the great performances on tv of this era to if you consider her arc through from the beginning to the end it really is an all-time wonderful tv acting performance uh, acting period it, it was really a pleasure to to have her in the city and have her working in the show and she's probably the character i'll miss most although i think i know a few women a lot like her so I particularly loved all of her scenes with her exes this half season uh, mm-hmm. with Larry and Antoine. None of them had a false beat in them, particularly her first couple scenes with Larry. The first one is just so full of bitterness on his part. And, and later they sort of come to a detente that's a little bit more pleasant. And I, I mean, I, I, I know something about the, that. So I guess that that helps. But uh, unlike many many of the other sort of nor- more New Orleans specific aspects, but yes, you're absolutely right. She was killer all the way through. Ladonna and Larry were like one of the real treats of this show, and how they from different worlds related to each other um, through this whole thing to the very end. I thought was uh, one of my favorite things about the show. Do we have any other thoughts about the finale specifically before we wrap up here or, or the final season? I forget who it was that was writing about Deadwood and they have that sequence of thoughts about where the show ends for them as opposed to where the show actually ends. And I was thinking about that in, in reference to Treme because it, it, it actually has a, an ending unlike Deadwood does. But, um, I was thinking about where, you know, where I leave characters. And I think, for instance, with Albert, that incredible moment at the New Year's Eve party where he's just bouncing left and right and he's so happy, like the happiest we've ever seen him. Like that to me is sort of, in a strange way, my concluding image of Treme, and certainly for that character, but of the, of the show in general, because people think of it as a dour series. Because uh, you know, I guess David Simon is sort of considered the the auteur of the show, even though he's only the co-creator, because he's the most vo- one of the most vocal sort of executive producers around, and you know, he has this muckraking persona and and I guess reality. And so people associate the show who who don't don't necessarily watch it with sort of dourness and cynicism and negativity, but that's really not what the show is at all, or, or at least it's only a small part of the show. And uh, I think the the many sort of grace notes and uh, and like small happy endings we get in the, in, in the finale are, are reflective of that too. You couldn't imagine most of those sort of happy moments ever happening on the wire, and we didn't get them on the wire. Uh, so I, I should I would hope that people who come to the show now and don't get the wire don't hold it against it. Yeah, it, this is a finale of happy endings. Everybody gets at least in some way a happy ending, and that 
I, and yes, maybe that's uncharacteristic of what the show's been, but I didn't care because I really like all these characters, even the ones I don't really like. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, watching them over the course of the series. So I was glad that Jeanette got her name back and Terry might be leaving, but at least he's going to be with his sons. Like you know, Everybody gets something good in this finale and maybe that's not the most you know identifiable or characteristic thing of Treme, but I didn't care. Yeah, there's a lot of expatriates who are living in places like Indianapolis who can totally relate to how Terry feels about the city still. And um, I was really pleased with the final season and the finale because to me it completed satisfactorily what I think the show was intended to do, which was to be not three and a half seasons of a TV show, but 36 episodes of one piece. And I mean, we'll see the complete box set comes out at the end of January. And I think, I think the creators were glad that they got to complete maybe in a truncated way, what they set out the power of the narrative to be from the beginning. And um, so I'm glad that they got it and that they got to complete it in a fashion that does complete what their original vision was, which was to show some characters uh, through the recovery timeline for some period of time, get at all the issues, get at the crime, get at the corruption, but also get at the moments of grace that, um, that on the whole balances out what life is like in New Orleans. Um, so uh, I thought the sort of the last glimpses of all that gave us all sort of a satisfactory conclusion to what began with that, you know, the first second line back after the storm, the one where Davis thought he heard rebirth out the window. So uh, I was on the whole really pleased with how it concluded. The only other element of the finale that I want to make sure to mention is because it is, on the whole, a really satisfying, very happy finale for me. I just I just about lost it at Mardi Gras when those shots fired. I was like, son of a... They're going to do it to LaDonna again. No, kind of, right. I was like, oh my god. I, that was the most anxious I've been watching a show since probably Breaking Bad. And so... I had to very effectively done tip of the hat to the Treme people because that worked like it was supposed to had to mention that. Uh, now we only have a couple minutes, but uh, any thoughts on the series as a whole outside of our discussion of, of season four, obviously we we're all fans, <laughs> but uh, you know, I guess one final, if you guys want to do it, one final pitch for why people should watch Treme. Um, I'll, I'll be real quick about it because it's simple to me. The, you know, the concluding uh, um, names on the screen of the musicians and people who were on the show but who died during the making of the show, including David Mills. There are performances preserved in Treme that I don't think would have existed. Final memories of some great, great people. And that goes for the all of the musical performances, which preserve um, all kinds of musical genres. Uh, one of the things in the complete season box set are is the, all of the full-length performances, I think 15 or so songs that were recorded for the show and some that are even sort of extras that probably are worth the price of the of the, of the box. Um, um, some of them are in genres that I don't necessarily love, but there's some great musical performances that that and, and performers who will be remembered um, for a long time because Treme came to New Orleans and and made a movie. So... That's sort of, I think, my final thing I'm grateful for. Simon? 
Well, I mean, how many shows have we shelved, Kate, at this point? A lot. Uh, almost 100? Yeah. Or maybe 75, I don't know. And I think it says something that Treme isn't really a whole lot like any of them. It's, a, I mean, it's a little bit like The Wire. It's a little bit like other things here and there, but its DNA is mostly unique to itself. And I think if you need no other reason to watch it, I think for for people who think they've seen everything or for people who have preconceived notions of what sort of pop culture representations of musicians or political intrigue or society in disarray or et cetera, et cetera, um, if they have whatever those preconceptions are, I, th- I think that they're shattered by this show. And maybe it's it's not necessarily a show that's going to hook you immediately. I think uh, it, t- it takes a f- it has an extremely unusual rhythm, as we all know. Uh, if you can get into the idea of a show that is driven not by plot but by ideas, um, I think it'll make you reorient yourself as a viewer in a way that you're not you didn't even know you needed or you didn't know you were interested in. And it's always those unexpected pleasures that uh, that are the ones that stick out in my mind. So hopefully that's true of uh, future TV viewers as well. Yes, it's a show of ideas. It's also a show of emotions for me. So that that's it, it, these great characters, this great musical performance, this great examination of art and culture and history and all sorts of other things. But it's also incredibly truthful and emotional in its depiction of all of that. And the word you said earlier, Dave, was grace. And that's that. That's what I guess what I will take away from Treme. Just a respectful, truthful, graceful depiction of a part of life and a part of the country and the world that we almost never see. So thank you, Treme people, for giving us such a wonderful show. Dave, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you online? Uh, NOLA.com slash TV is where all my TV stuff goes. And then there's the big um, repository of Treme stuff, which is at NOLA.com slash Treme hyphen HBO. And that's all four seasons of profiles of the creators behind the scenes, plus the actors, plus all of the Treme explained um, pieces that sort of tie together all the minutiae. And that's all still there. Um, I really enjoyed this. Thank you guys very much for letting me do it. Absolutely. We'll have to get you back on sometime to talk about a show other than Treme. There are other shows, so we'll have to make that work. Thank you again, Dave, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse.